Hello and welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, National NBA writer for the Washington Post, and I'm very happy to be joined today by my former colleague and very good friend, Mark Berman, the Knicks beat writer for the New York Post. Legendary Knicks beat writer probably is the better way to put it. Mark, how are you? Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me on, and uh, congratulations on your gig. Thanks, man. Um, I, for those of you who don't know, I spent... Uh, eight and a half years at the post before at the New York post before I came to the Washington post last month for this job. And a large portion of that time was spent covering the NBA working with, uh, with my friend, Mark. Um, I was covering the nets. He was covering the Knicks. And, um, I, I think it's safe to say, Mark, that you, you enjoy being, um, the Knicks beat writer for the New York post, right? I mean, that, that's a, that's a pretty prestigious job and it, it's kind of the, the New York post is, is a, a pretty iconic paper and it's it's the kind of place where um where writers there get to let their personality kind of come through in their work and I, I think it's safe to say that you've been able to uh been able to do that over time yeah i mean the great thing about the post as you know is you know you get a lot of space and you get a lot of leeway and you could put your opinion uh in there a lot of writers have you know just a more restrictive and uh, you know, the, I think the New York Post has as much, has as much, if not more, space in their sports section than any newspaper in the country. Maybe next to the Washington Post, I don't know. But <laughs> um, no, we we get a lot of uh, chances to tackle a lot of different subjects uh, on the beat. And as you know, you know, you took great advantage of that uh, when you were with New York, uh, and uh, it's a great place to work for a sports writer. That's for sure. What uh, what I know you started covering the Knicks in what nineteen ninety seven, right? Is that the right no, year? Uh, well, I was doing sidebars. I, my main uh, when I took over the beat was the ninety nine two thousand season, coming off their birth to the finals. So basically, ever since I took over the beat, it's been downhill. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they have not gotten back to the finals. Uh, but yeah, no, it. it it's been, I think, sixteen years. Yeah. And, uh, well, I was going to say, it, I was going to say, could yeah, you have yeah. ever, could you have ever guessed when you started that you'd still be doing it this this far along? No, I mean, uh, you never think you'd be covering the Knicks for sixteen years, but I'm delighted. I've enjoyed it a lot more than I thought. Uh, I was covering the Islanders uh, for the Post prior to that, and you know, grew up on Long Island and was really passionate about the Islanders team. So when I went to the Knicks, it was a little bit of an adjustment, but the fans are just so passionate, Tim, and, and you know it more than anyone. They read about the Knicks more than any any team on our slate, except maybe the Yankees. I mean, that's how the, the, the web numbers uh, track out, and uh, that's what makes it so enjoyable. You feel that there's so much passion, despite all the losing seasons, and and the horrible moments, they still care so much. And even this season, you know, they're starting a, a downward turn, but they want Knicks coverage, and, and that's what makes the job so enjoyable. Well, and, and you you really get to the heart of that, the way you've, you've always covered the beat. I, I've always gotten, a, I mean, I'm not the only one, but I've always gotten a kick out of the way you, you do your job because, I mean, for those of you who don't know Mark, he works harder than anybody on the beat, but... Um, I, I always enjoy your coverage because you kind of – you don't root for the team, so I don't want this to come off that way, but you, you kind of cover the team from the fans' perspective. And what I what I mean by that is when 
the team gets going and things are good, you're really like you get fired up about the way things are going and you get excited about the possibilities for things. But then when the team starts to go south and, you know, especially during those team Titanic days, um, the mid two thousands, you will hammer them as much or more than anybody. And you, I, I just was curious, you, it, it, do you kind of consciously, um, do you kind of consciously try to channel the way fans are reacting to stuff when you're you're writing, or is that just kind of the way you've you've grown into the beat over time? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the kind words. You know, the funny thing is, uh, the regular Knicks fan will say, "Oh, you, you know, all you are is negative, blah blah blah." But when you're right, when the team is going well, there's no one touting them harder than I do. Uh, and legitimately so, you know, when things are on the upswing, they deserve to get positive coverage. And yeah, I mean, I'm, it's my inner fan in me. I mean, I, I grew up in New York city and, you know, the Knicks were always a, a big deal. And, uh, you, I just have a pulse of, of the fans. Uh, you know, I have so many friends who are diehard Knicks fans. My father is a diehard Knicks fans. Watch, uh, he watches every single game. So yeah, you get a, a pulse of the fans, and it's become easier to interact with the fans now because of uh, Twitter and email. Uh, but I appreciate the kind words, and you know, you try to be balanced and criticize them when things are worth criticizing, and praise them when things are going well. Now you've you've gotten you've gotten some notoriety on social media, even though you don't really participate in it. Both with some people from the other papers. Uh, recently, I know um, our friend Scott Casciola has started the Burmameter, um, or the Burmometer, I should <laughs> or say. Burmometer, the yeah. Burmometer. Yeah, you have to I screwed that. It exactly I know. Correct. I I screwed that up the other day when I saw Scott too. Um, he told me you've gotten a kick out of that, though. Um, do you do you do you kind of in, do you kind of enjoy the uh, do you kind of enjoy some of the, the social media fame you've gotten out of being the, on the beat? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And I think Cacciola started a uh, Begley-ometer, the uh, <laughs> yeah, Begley of the that. ESPN New York. Yeah, I think last night there was a Begley-ometer. I might be pronouncing it wrong. But, yeah, no, it's a lot of fun, and Scott's a funny guy. And, you know, the, the beat, it's a pretty close-knit beat, and we joke around, and we bust chops all the time. And, you know, everyone talks about, the guy from the Daily News and myself having some kind of like war, but it it's really all in good fun. And you know, he in fact was at the game last night in uh in Boston, and uh, we had some fun moments. So yeah, it, it's a very close speed and uh, a lot of laughs. And you have to have laughs when you're covering a franchise as uh, dysfunctional as the Knicks at times. <laughs> Well, that that's definitely true, and is that and is that and and just because as someone who is your friend and as a longtime colleague of yours, when I would go places, people would say, "Why doesn't Berman ever say anything about Isola?" I mean, it, I I mean, I've talked to you about this off air, but um, is that just is that the reason why? Just it's just kind of you just kind of take it in stride and not worry about any of the other stuff that happens. Yeah, I guess uh, you know. Listen, when we're together, we we get along very well. I feel if I respond to one tweet, then I have to respond to every one of them, and I'd be spending my entire day doing that. So uh, I, I, you know, I just let him go at it, and he enjoys it, and 
I get a kick out of it once in a while. And, uh, but it, again, it's all in good fun. And it's always funny to hear fans ask me, you know, how come you guys hate each other? And that, that's not the truth. Yeah, we'll 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 take down Frank Opeg on on uh, people thinking that you have a giant rivalry on that. Um, you mentioned you mentioned the the rough periods for the Knicks um, for most of your for most of your tenure. Um, is there a is there a period that that is kind of the the low point from the the fifteen years? Is it the Larry Brown uh, Stefan kind of debacle in in oh five oh six, or is there another? maybe the Isaiah stuff, like, I know there's a lot to choose from, but is there, is there kind of a, a moment in time that, that you think of as really as kind of the nadir of, of that stretch of uh, Nick's history? You know, it's funny, the, the Larry Brown year, it might have been one of the low points, low points of the franchise, but from a journalist perspective, uh, it was just great. Uh, Larry Brown was giving us great stuff, and Isaiah Thomas was always entertaining, and we had so much to write about, you know, obviously Stephon Marbury feuding with Larry. So um, it was great from our standpoint. The low point to me, really, I hate to say it was last season. Uh, at this time last year, the Knicks were completely out of the playoff race. They had five victories. Really, by December 1st, the games had be- had started to become meaningless. And just talking to, you know, our assignment editors, you know, Mark Hale and Dave Blezzo and Chris Shaw, it was still trying to make them readable uh, across January, February, March, and, and April. And I thought we did a pretty good job, but it wasn't easy. You know, we talked a lot about their upcoming free agency and the draft, of course, uh, as they had a lottery pick. But th- it was so challenging because, unfortunately, you went to the arena starting January 1st especially, and it, it meant nothing. The games meant nothing. They were so out of it. And then January 5th, you know, Phil literally blew up the team and, and they lost all their characters, uh, J.R. Smith and Iman Shumpert, and, and he waved D'Alembert. And so then it became even more challenging because the players on the roster weren't personalities. And, you know, Stoudemire gets bought out and then Carmelo has season-ending surgery. So very challenging uh, last season. That was the low point uh, for me uh, in trying to... Uh, come up with stories well and i guess that's true because i mean you know there i mean you did have one of the great lines of all time when you when you called them team titanic uh during that larry brown and stefan uh debacle but you're right like at least back then there was stuff to write about i mean i guess because it was so close in time i didn't really think about it but last year was so boring um i remember we were talking yeah. the second week of november and i was saying to you they're going to be one of the three worst teams in the league and you know, there was nothing you could do about it. And like you said, you know, they trade J.R. Smith and Iman Shumpert. Uh, Carmelo makes it to the All-Star game basically so he could play in the All-Star game in New York and then immediately has surgery, so he's not there. And, you know, Derek Fisher's not exactly lighting up the room with quotes. So, yeah, no, I didn't even uh, I didn't even think about that. But, yeah, it's probably uh, – that's that's that probably is the – from our standpoint, you know, at least, at least if there's stuff to write about, you can – you can find a way to get through the season, but if if you've got nothing to write about, yeah. then you're just kind of uh, yeah. I mean, just kind of stuck. I I remember getting emails from you saying like, I can't believe you wrote about that, but I was able to sell the story, and people somehow read it. So well, you did an incredible yeah, job last year. It's, it's no doubt. <laughs> I I'm not in because it that team. I mean, I I I told you a bunch of times. I mean, that team was as boring a team as you could possibly be around because. You know, from our standpoint, trying to do the job, 
you know, like you said, you try to go to work every day and find something interesting to write about. And, you know, the kind of the beauty and the curse of writing about a basketball team is there's only a few guys that matter. You know, there's really six, seven guys that really matter on an NBA team, um, whether it's good or bad. And if you're if the guys that matter end up being Lance Thomas and Lou Amundsen in for two yeah. months, I mean, that's that's a pretty tough situation. Now, we'll get back to the, the current Knicks in a minute, but I want to backtrack for a second because you you started your career. You went to Albany, University of Albany, and you started your career in the Albany area. And I don't know how many people know that. And during during that time, um, that was at kind of the height of the CBA. Um, and you got to come across a lot of um, a lot of people that became, you know, pretty prominent NBA people later, Phil Jackson, Bill Musselman, George Carl. Um, so if you could, I was just kind of hoping you could walk walk the listeners through um, your time at Albany and what it was like um, covering the Albany Patroons and what it was like being around those guys as they kind of, you know, got their uh, coaching career started. Yeah, no, it was a tremendous learning experience for me. In three consecutive years covering the Albany Patroons, I I covered Phil Jackson in his last year in Albany, then Bill Musselman, uh, who then went on to coach Minnesota, uh, and George Carl. Uh, and it was, you know, three totally different personalities. But, you know, it's amazing because I covered Phil, obviously, before the triangle and before he became a legend. And at that time, let's face it, he was kind of blackballed from the league. He, he was trying to get a Knicks assistance job and couldn't even land that, and he spent five solid seasons in Albany. Yeah, can you can, can, I, can I make you pause yeah. for a second, Mark? Can you kind of explain that to people? Because I don't think I think there's a large number of people that don't really know um, anything about Phil's career before Chicago. Um, they know he played for the Knicks and they know he coached the Bulls, but I don't think they know anything in the middle. So can you kind of can you kind of walk people through that? Like what what his what the situation he was in at that point? Yeah, well, what happened was, uh, I guess he was a player coach uh, with the Nets at the very end of his playing career in the early 1980s, and then he tried broadcasting and did not like that at all, and he decided to, you know, become a head coach in the CBA and the minor league, then then the minor league of the NBA, Uh, did not think that that would last five or maybe even six seasons. Uh, you know, he, the irony is he was a good CBA coach and Albany made the playoffs almost every year. He did win a championship, but for the most part, he got out coached in the playoffs by Bill Musselman, uh, then of the Tampa Bay thrillers. Uh, Bill Musselman was winning most of the CBA championships at that time. Uh, and my, my recollection in his, he finally in uh, 90, uh, it was, 86 87 season uh when he was when he finished the season he resigned he went to puerto rico to coach uh the puerto rican uh professional leagues he was doing that uh in the summertime and i remember my big recollection is you know i reached out to him in puerto rico i think the Albany patroons had set me up with a phone call with him and it was a terrible phone connection and I only heard maybe half of what he said, but what, one of the things he said in that summer of 87 was, I think I'm going to consider law school. And I'll always remember that all through his great career. I'll, I'll always remember that conversation, and I don't know if he does. 
but I remember him, you know, talking about applying to law school. And uh, two months later, he didn't have to apply to law school. The Bulls, Jerry Krause, finally hired him as an assistant coach to Doug Collins, who had a falling out with Michael Jordan. And then the rest is, uh, you know, history. Yeah, no, and that and that's the part I wanted people to know is I, you told me the story about you calling him in Puerto Rico before, and I always I that that always thought that was incredible that you know this guy who became you know arguably the greatest coach of all time, you know, was kind of toiling in the CBA for a while, and you know at one point did kind of contemplate just giving up and doing something else, and you know if Jerry Krause hadn't called him that summer, who knows? Maybe none of that would have ever happened. Um, and it, it is kind of maybe he would have become the greatest lawyer of all. <laughs> maybe he would have. Maybe he would have. Um, <laughs> but so so what? So you so what was what were um what were the CBA days like? Because um, I think for a lot of people, especially in you know kind of my age group, you know the CBA you know really kind of died out in the late nineties, and you know a lot of people don't you know now like everybody's kind of familiar with the D League because that you know that's become. That's that's really become invoked since then, and now it's kind of you know now it's obviously owned by the league, and it's become kind of more of an official minor league. But you know the CBA was a pretty important league, and you know really started a lot of you know Flip Saunders came out of the CBA. A lot of people, um, a lot of people had their careers started, especially coaching wise, in the CBA. Like what what was that environment like to be around and to cover? It was a crazy you know shoestring budget league. But ESPN really helped out. They started covering the playoffs and the championship round. But, you know, the coaches like Phil, you know, you'd have a roster one day and then two days later, you know, someone would sign with an NBA team. The rosters were constantly fluctuating. And yet the coaches were still expected to win. The owners of the CBA teams, they're not affiliated with the NBA. They demanded uh, a winning team. So it was it, that's why I think it was such a tremendous experience for Bo Jackson and even George Carl, who came for a couple of years to have to adapt to the crazy environment of always losing your players to whether it's Europe uh, or the NBA or, or guys just quitting mid season. Um, but you know, the, the fans in Albany, it was called the Washington Avenue armory. It was a dumpy little uh, arena, 3000 seats. Uh, you know, used by the National Guard to practice. And, the you know, Phil Jackson and the players would use the same restrooms as the fans. So, uh, and the fans were right on top of you. It was quite the uh, atmosphere. Uh, but, again, it was a thrill to cover because of the coaches I was with. And I learned so much from hearing Phil Jackson talk, even though he didn't know the triangle then. And hearing Bill Musselman talk about defense, and George Carl also uh, was a great experience. So for a young Cub reporter to be around those coaches uh, really helped me a lot. All right, now let's let's transition forward to um, to the present day and the, the current Knicks. Um, and I, I think we have to start with uh, the new star of the team, Chris Das Porzingis. Um, Back back when they drafted Porzingis, uh, a certain friend of mine, I don't think was exactly enamored with the pick. Um, didn't I think he thought they should have drafted somebody else, maybe a point guard who's playing in Denver at the moment. And I'm just I'm just curious from your perspective. Um, and, and to be fair, you weren't the only one who was skeptical of of Porzingis when the Knicks drafted him. Um, but how how surprised have you been at? 
his emergence and the way he's been able to so seamlessly um, kind of, you know, capture the spotlight. And, you know, I know he's in the middle of a bit of a downstretch now, but you really be able to kind of step in and immediately contribute the way that he's done over these first couple months of the season. It's stunning. Uh, it really is. You know, the first time I met him, uh, my opinion started to change. He was so mature. His English was terrific. Uh, he seemed very smart, very personable. He's the exact opposite of, say, a Andrea Bergnani. And at that point, I said, you know what? Maybe, maybe his rookie year won't be such a disaster. Now, what's happened still, you know, even after the summer league, when he got, you know, he wasn't rebounding the ball and his hands weren't great. And, you know, he didn't shoot the ball that well, but he showed that he doesn't back down. But even after the summer league, I didn't think he'd make much of an impact as a rookie. Well, and I, I want to stop you for a second. Well, for, yeah. the, for the people that don't, for the people that think that Mark is just a cheerleader for the team, I was way more in the tank for Porzingis after summer league than Mark. And I spent the summer trying to convince him that he was going to be really good. And he was skeptical the whole time. He did not, he did not get on board until after the season started. Um, which, which just makes me laugh now. Um, so what, yeah. when, what, what changed when the season, like, did you just see him in preseason and think that, and think that, uh, that thing that he just had made a big leap over the summer? Well, he put on 11 pounds and, you know, he definitely got stronger and he just learned very quickly and he had a different mindset. You know, again, he didn't rebound in the summer league. All of a sudden, uh, the preseason starts and he's, grabbing offensive boards and defensive rebounds and posting up a little bit. And uh, he, he really showed a market improvement. And it just shows that, you know, the, with the work ethic and a strong grasp of the English language, all those you know obstacles for European players, you know, weren't there for him. I mean, he, it, it, was a, it was a terrific pick by Phil, especially Phil didn't even go out to Spain to see him play. Uh, Steve Mills did, and Clarence Gaines went out there. But that's why I think it was so shocking uh, that they decided to take him because they met him, uh, you know, a few days before the draft. Bill meets him for the first time. When he got hurt in his workout, too, didn't he, Mark? Yeah, he had to stop his workout because of a hip injury, which could have been a red flag. But Bill had seen and heard so much great things and when he met him and they measured him and he was taller than they expected, he was seven foot one without shoes. So they were able to list him at seven foot three with shoes. They were very impressed by that because, you know, they had heard about Okafor's measurements, which he was shorter than they thought he was. So um, it was definitely a turn in philosophy across the final 10 days of the draft. Um, it seems they were leaning a different way. Uh, and it turns out that Phil trusted his instincts and he trusted Clarence Gaines Jr., who is a former Bull Scout, and he came back from Spain and told Phil, if we get the number one pick, we should get this guy uh, because his upside is out of, out of, out of control. He'll, he'll be the best player in five years from this draft. But Phil was in a position of needing help right away, and that's why he looked to trade down for multiple assets. But he took a, a huge swing and 
so far has hit a home run. Imagine if they'd traded down, Mark. Like, imagine if they'd, if they'd made that, that, you know, Boston was shopping all those first-round picks. Imagine yeah. if they'd done that or something. Can you imagine what people in New York would be doing if Porzingis was doing this in, in Boston or Charlotte uh-huh. or somewhere else than here? Oh, my, it would be unbelievable. People would be... Yeah, especially if he was doing it in Boston. You're right. Boston was very aggressive, and Solinger was being shopped. And, uh, yeah, he, he, he said after the draft, listen, this is... Uh, High risk, but it's high reward, and so far it's been very rewarding. And I give Phil a ton of credit because, you know, like you said, this was a team that needed immediate help. Phil is not exactly a spring chicken anymore. Um, you know, we we I think you and I both thought that Justice Winslow might be the pick because he was able to he'd be able to come in and play right away, um, and and play defense on the wing and and do stuff that could help right away. And Carmelo would have been happy with that. And you know, Phil takes this nineteen year old kid from from Latvia who no one had ever seen play and um you know no one people thought even the people who liked him thought it was going to take him a couple years to really be ready to contribute and um you know it is it is a pretty remarkable turnaround now how how much I mean obviously Porzingis has become a fan favorite and he looks like he's got a chance to be a superstar player which is a huge hit for the Knicks but um how much does he change do you think their immediate future in terms of um of what they're going to do maybe with Carmelo, what they do next summer. Like, do you, do you think that, um, do you think that he changes at all their timeline on, on any, any of the potential moves they might've made moving forward? I think if Carmelo wants to be here, I think he will be here. Um, I think what's great about having Porzingis is going into the 2016 free agency, you know, Phil and Steve Mills can now sit down with a free agent and say, we got two, you know, star star players. And that's going to be more attractive than last summer when Carmelo's coming off knee surgery and Greg Monroe barely have, has, had ever heard of Christoph Porzingis. And I asked Greg Monroe when he was at the Garden recently, and I said, you know, did they, when they met with you, did they talk about Porzingis? And they said they did, but I had never seen him play. I, he, he hadn't even seen him on tape. So... When he chose Milwaukee, he chose a roster that he thought was making the playoffs. Ironically, it looks like both teams won't make the playoffs. But, no, I, I think that the big point is that Phil gets a chance now to sell Przingis in the summer. As far as trading Carmelo, I mean, it's got to be a great package. And I don't think there's going to be a great package for him. It's got to be, you know, first-round picks and a young really good player and the the money is you know it's 25 million and there's a trade kicker and it's so complicated and then you need Carmelo to approve the trade because there was no trade clause it just seems to be a very difficult thing to do even if you wanted to do it so I just think they're going to try to get Carmelo and Porzingis and build around those two guys and uh, they have cap space and they have a dire need for a point guard. And maybe if they could convince Mike Conley this summer to come to New York, maybe you got something. Now, Mike Conley is a terrific player, but he's not exactly a triangle point guard. I mean, he's, he's six one, maybe Um, he's probably smaller than that. Um, How, how wedded do you think Phil is to, to kind of adhering to the triangle principles that he has stuck to in the past in terms of trying to get, um, 
trying to you know trying to fill out the positions on his teams the way he always has with big guards and 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 going down down the line or do you think that maybe that's not quite the same as it has been yeah i just can't see him being that fussy at this point they were fussy with rondo this past summer they didn't have any interest in rondo because of what you were saying maybe he's not the perfect triangle fit and he's having a, a really nice season with sacramento and he'll be a free agent again i'm sure the knicks are going to go after him right now i mean calderon is on his last legs Jerry and Grant, everyone was very excited when they made the pick or they traded with Atlanta for Grant. But he's shown that he's, even though he's 23, he's still a rookie and still is adjusting to the game, you know, to the speed of the game. He's not really getting the triangle down pat yet. And Langston Galloway, he's an overachiever, but there's only so much there with Langston. I think he's better in a reduced reserve role. 15 minutes a night. So they're desperate at point guard. And I hope that they don't get too fussy uh, when they look for point guards this uh, summer and just try to get the best point guard available. And to me, that's Conley. Yeah, no, I, from a, from a playing standpoint, there's really no doubt that Conley is head and shoulders above everybody else. I was just, I just didn't know if he would stick to that. Cause I know that, um, in the past, like you said, you know, I'm not the biggest Rondo fan at this point, but I know that that was, like you said, something that prevented them from from going after him harder um, last summer. Now, when you look at when you look at the Knicks right now, um, you know, they went out in free agency last year and they weren't able to convince a a star level player to come. Um, you know, Lamar Aldridge ended up not meeting with him at all, and um, you know, they they didn't really go after anybody else, but they got a bunch of um, of solid role players. You know, they got Robin Lopez. They got Aaron Aflalo. Um, and I think they made an ill-advised signing in Derek Williams with a chance on him. Um, they brought back Lance Thomas, who's been really good. They, they brought back Lou Amundsen, uh, who's been fine. Um, assuming they don't get uh, a Kevin Durant type this summer, which I, I don't think we expect them to really do, um, what do you, do you think, do you see them going a similar route again um, if they can't get a guy like him or Conley and trying to um, to surround uh, Carmelo and Porzingis with a, with more role players to try to deepen the roster or do you see them maybe trying to make a trade um, what what do you think what do you think they'll do if if they do you know do strike out at the very top of the market next summer yeah I mean the problem with the roster is they have a lot of guys coming back uh, there's not a lot of roster spots uh, you know, Derek Williams was signed with a player option. I don't think he's going to use it. I think he'll come back. And uh, so I think trading a few of their assets to get the position they need, which is in the backcourt, I think is definite. Is a definite possibility. Um, you know, getting more role players, they, I think they have enough of them. Aflalo is another guy with that player option. He's in a kind of a slump right now i don't know if he's going to use it either uh but i i think they they need a position right now i mean it's pretty obvious almost every night if they go against a quick point guard uh they're getting burned you know i mean they're getting the point guards are getting into the lane and it's the same old story the next defense goes into scramble mode and usually a shooter is left open so they need to solidify the perimeter defense and that's going to be the priority 
uh, in the off season and even at the trade deadline. So, you know, they'll have a lot of cap space, but again, there's not a lot of positions open. Robin Lopez is, you know, long-term, obviously Przingis, Carmelo, uh, and we'll see what happens with Oflalo. So a lot depends on what happens with Oflalo and Derek Williams if they use their opt-outs. Yeah, no, that that definitely makes sense to me. Now, you mentioned you don't think they're going to make the playoffs this year earlier. Um, The Knicks had gotten back to 500 with a four-game winning streak. Then they probably lost their next four games Um, after losing last night in Boston. They're 14 and 18. Um, I think they're three or four games out of the eighth spot um, in a very crowded bottom of the Eastern Conference right now. Um, Do you think they have the ability to get back into the playoff picture this season? Um, or, or do you think that they're, the deficiencies at point guard are just too great for them to make up, um, you know, to leapfrog over the several teams they have to to get into a playoff spot? You know, I, I think they could hang around. Uh, they're very good at beating, you know, the poor teams. The teams they should beat, they beat. They just are not competitive right now against the top of the league. They're 0-3 against Cleveland, 0-2 against Miami, 0-2 against Atlanta. I think their record against winning clubs is something like 1-15 or, or, or around that mark. Uh, you know, if they stay healthy, I think they could maybe sniff around the eighth seed, get, you know, within four or five games and be in the race in late March. But it, it looks like the East is so strong this year with teams like Detroit and Orlando, uh, Charlotte, all improving, Indiana improving. Uh, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't bode well right now. You know, I was talking to someone close to the team today saying you shouldn't measure the Knicks' success this year on whether they make the playoffs. If they win 34 games, that's double the total of last season, and that should be considered a success. But I feel differently. Uh, I mean, I I, I don't think they're going to make the playoffs, but I I still think they should be in the hunt uh, into April for me to say, yeah, it's a clear success. Well, I think that's as good a place as any to end things. Mark, thanks for joining me. Um, where can people find you on Twitter, and what would you like to plug? Uh, well, the, my Twitter handle, NYPost, uh, long dash, Berman. Underscore, and, underscore, uh, not long under- dash. <laughs> that's, that's the so phrase. people actually get the right uh, one. Yeah. And uh, no, just uh, NYPost.com is, is our website, and we're on the newsstands, even in Washington, D.C. <laughs> it's very true. You should go pick it up there. Um, I, um, You can find my work at the Washington Post website. You can find the Posting Up podcast on iTunes. Please search Posting Up on iTunes. You'll find it there. And rate and review if you would. Give us a five-star review. That'd be awesome. Um, and the, the intro and outro music on this podcast is from... Uh, the sports digital editor at the Washington Post, Glenn Yoder, and his band, The Western States. So, Glenn, thank you for that. Um, and Mark, thank you for the time. Um, I appreciate it, my friend. It's good to catch up with you, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again soon. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Tim. And again, good luck uh, in your uh, new newspaper. And uh, it, I've been reading it, and it's uh, your stuff is great as as always. Appreciate it, buddy. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.